So, I'm gonna go ahead and get this out of the way now. This is among my favorite episodes of Babylon 5. And as usual, I don't have as many notes as I'd like to think. I, I know this problem just keeps happening in my life. It's like, oh, it's this great episode. I don't have much to say, but it's a great episode, you know. There's only so much to analyze uh, when it comes to good television. At least that's what my experience has been over the last couple of years of doing this. One of the reasons this episode is so nice, though, is that this is everything coming, uh, starting to showcase where things have come, things starting to come together. What I mean by that is this episode is another excellent example of continuity and the benefits of continuity. Everything in this episode has more significance because of the previous episodes. The thing with Shakar, the thing with Londo, the interactions with Delenn, the interactions with Sinclair, the deal with Kosh, and of course, the entire Raider plot, which is the primary plot of the episode. Now, I just like to start off by saying I feel really bad for Ivanova. Uh, she talks about how she can't, it's hard for her to wake up because of the Night Star. You know, because of living in space. It's interesting because I actually have the opposite problem. Now, I don't really have this problem anymore, thank God. But back when I was working at Net Standard, the place where I started the show, basically. Um, that's not literally true, but you know what I mean. Um, back where I started doing the videos, you know, the data center you guys all saw. Uh, back when I was there, I worked from uh, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., so there were many, many long periods of time, often weeks, if not months, where I would, I would literally not the, see the sun. I would get home before the sun rose and just collapse, exhausted, and I would wake up after the sun had risen and then go to work. So for me, uh, I had the opposite problem. I had a hard time sleeping when the sun was up. So I, I really feel bad for Ivanova for having the, uh, for, you know, the, the problem that she does, and I completely sympathize. It's also interesting to... Uh, to see how professional she still takes herself despite the fact that she's having sleeping problems. It's just indicative of her character. Oh, excuse me. Okay. So the hole in the mind thing here. So I like this because Sinclair goes to Garibaldi about this. The reason I like this is because Sinclair basically hasn't really turned up much in his investigation uh, about the matter. In fact, he's turned up nothing as we find out so he's trying to figure out what the heck is up with him and the vision of of uh delenn you remember back in uh the episode whose name i forget i'm really bad with episode names in babylon 5 there's like three episodes whose names i remember distinctly but anyways um but the episode with night one and night two going into his brain where he saw delenn um during that episode <clears throat> He had a mystery that he's been trying to solve ever since, and he's failed miserably. The reason I like this is because that's very logical. You know, in other, in other circumstances, that would be bad and lazy writing. That would be just, we need to introduce this somehow, so we're going to introduce it even though it doesn't make sense. But in this case, it makes perfect sense because, A, Sinclair is shown to be extremely busy all the time, constantly, in some cases, going for days without sleep. That happened in By All Means Necessary. Uh, necessary. Um, so we, we understand that Sinclair is sufficiently busy and doesn't really have political friends back home and doesn't really have that kind of investigative skill. He has a keen tactical mind and he's got some good charisma, but he does not have the ability to look into something. So he goes to Garibaldi, who also has been established throughout the show as someone who is extremely intelligent as a detective. And again, as I've pointed out more than once before, someone who doesn't just look at the surface, someone who is very thorough in his investigation, and that will also come up in the future as well. So, really nice job on that. And again, that has more significance because of continuity. And this is just flavoring. 
This is just a little bit of, of, of icing on top of the cake. That's, that's all it is. It's, it's not necessary. It's not mandatory, but it helps. It adds. It fleshes it out because instead of this just being quick, we need A to happen so A happens because plot, there's backstory, there's reason, there's establishment for why this happens. Um, <clears throat> next thing I want to mention, and this also goes back to the whole you know continuity thing, Londo has to buy a historical treasure back. Now, based on how they talk about it, we don't really have an equivalent of this on Earth because this is one of the oldest relics of Centauri imperialism. The first, you know, one of the signs of the original house that became the first emperor in Centauri history. That's going way back. And... Yeah, there's uh, not really much of an equivalent of that in real-life human history, but there are still some artifacts in human history that are, you know, basically priceless. You know, you can't actually put a price tag on it. Not in any legitimate sense. It's not worth the gold it's made of, so to speak. It's the historical value. It's, it's the cultural value. You know, that kind of thing. Political value, for that matter. So, the Empire of the Centauri, finding the aha, we have found the eye, and it's ours. You know, it's, it makes so much sense that they keep this all in the down low. Because we see in this episode just how low the Centauri have become. We see how degraded the Empire has, or excuse me, the Republic, has descended to. Empire, Republic, what's the difference? Um... Please don't answer me that. I know the difference between the two. So I love the way that it showcases that. It never even has to necessarily say that. They never come out and say, oh, we're all pathetic. They, they mention it several times. When Kiro and when Londo talk several times, Kiro's just like, we used to be great. And, and Londo's like, yeah, I know, I know. But you get all of that just from that first scene. They have to buy the eye back um, for a lot of money, no less. <clears throat> And then there's a scene where Londo and Jakar are arguing with a human in between them. I have to admit, I like this scene for three reasons. Number one, the allegory is so obvious and yet so on the nose. A Narn and a, and a, and a Centauri arguing over a human who's literally standing in the middle trying really hard not to get involved in the fight. And who rushes off into the elevator and makes them miss their elevator. I mean, it's so obvious I like it. Um... It's also kind of slightly humorous, especially that last line. Now look what you made me do! Yeah, I like that as well. The other reason I like that is it's not actually funny when you think about it. These two men squabbling are indicative of the actual problem the two organizations have. These are ambassadors, okay? These are two ambassadors whose interests and whose job description is being the representative of your nation to other nations and trying to get along with other nations. And these two ambassadors are bickering and arguing. Now, they're not actually at the point of actual violence. That was, you know, several episodes ago. But really, it's not funny when you think about it. So, yeah, like I said, three reasons that I like that scene. Uh, I'm going to skip over this thing, because I want to talk about that last before we get to the, sec to the spoiler section. Um, <clears throat> so, Kira's actually played by Quinn. I don't know the actor's name, because I'm terrible. He played... Quinn, over on Star Trek Voyager, a.k.a. the second Q, uh, not the third Q or the fourth Q, in Voyager, specifically, which actually would make that, like, the seventh Q and eighth Q, but whatever, you get the point. The Q in the episode Death Wish is specifically what I'm referencing. Uh, he did a great job over there, he does a great job here. He plays a... He plays an interesting take on Londo, and I know that sounds weird, but hear me out. 
Londo is someone who is actually quite intelligent, very politically adept, and obviously knows how to play the game and doesn't really care anymore. He has completely resigned himself to a situation. I've talked over and over and over, ever since the first episode, about how great the actor playing Londo has just sold me on that part. There's a reason Londo's my favorite character. Kiro is someone who hasn't given up and someone who isn't quite as brilliant as Londo is politically. I love the scene where Kiro is talking about if I could, I could go back with the eye and claim the Emperor's seat. And Londo, within seconds, cuts right to the heart of the matter and says, this is what would happen. And he's right. Because Kiro could go back, take the eye, claim the Imperial seat, with the backing of his house, done. And Londo is absolutely correct. It wouldn't last a few days. With no proper backing, with no infrastructure of support, with no promises, with no anything, all he's going to do is walk up and make himself a target. And that we see the difference between Kiro and Londo. Londo knows what he's doing, he just doesn't care anymore. Kiro doesn't know what he's doing and cares desperately. He, God, I need to get back into power. I need to do this. And we see how foolish he's become with his deal with the Raiders, which, it is implied but never stated outright, has been going on for a long time. The captain of the Raiders actually mentions five years of raiding in the, in the area. Now, I don't know if, if Kiro's been involved with them for five years, but I mention that because he's obviously been involved with them for a while. This is not a new thing. This is not something that started before this episode, or, or for this episode, excuse me. This is something that started some time ago. And Kira was so foolish and so stupid as to think that backing these pirates would give him some kind of private muscle. And the funny thing is he might have been right, but even the pirate captain is more intelligent than he is, has more of a grasp on reality, I should say, than he does. I don't want to call Kira stupid, because that's not quite what I'm going with. He's delusional, not stupid. He thinks he can actually take a pirate band has his backing, take the eye back and claim the Emperor's seat, because it's his. his. This is his house's eye, and therefore he should be the one in charge. He and his people should be the ones in charge. The end. For him, it's really simple. So I'm going to get this tiny pirate group, which was completely curb-stomped by a single non-military station. Okay, I know, I know, Babylon 5 could be argued to be a military station, but you get my point. It's not a fortress. And he thinks he could take that and go win. I also uh, very, very much like how there's this scene where Kiro is like, you know, how do we lose it all? And, all, and, and I could just take the eye back. You know, the scene between Kiro and Londo. I get the impression Kiro wanted to ask Londo for his support in that and either couldn't or believed he wouldn't. One of the two. It is also, of course, possible he is completely delusional and didn't think he needed it. Uh, that's within the realm of feasibility as well. Um, <clears throat> what else have we got? Look at my notes here really quick. Uh, I like the more hard science approach in Babylon 5. It's something I liked in Mass Effect as well. Uh, just little details that help it add to my enjoyment of the battle scenes. Instead of, you know, attack pattern delta, do this, fire their engines, that kind of thing. They have little additives, like, for example... I want you to change the guns for long firing range within these, you know, it's like two to five clicks or whatever. And the guy says, well, we're going to have to take the, the system offline for about a minute to do that. That's a nice touch, and I like that. Having to pull down the aft turret system to reconfigure them for different firing makes perfect sense. 
And and I like that it's not just well, just do it. You know, you have to actually do this procedure. I also like the way he baited them and, and called them in. I also like the fact this episode makes it fundamentally clear. It's been hinted at before. Uh, a little bit more info on how jump gates work. Obviously, they have the jump gate, you know, uh, array around Babylon 5, but large enough ships actually can form jump gates on their own. They actually have effectively a internal drive that can do that kind of a thing. And so in this episode, uh, something that has actually been hinted at, I think, three times so far, you know, because the Raiders have been a constant threat throughout most of the, well, I shouldn't say constant, a repeating threat throughout season one so far. Um, the, uh, so one of the big undercurrents of, of the Raider threat has always been the fact that they have been suspiciously uh, capable where they really shouldn't be. And this episode kind of shows how that is. They actually have a capital ship. They actually have the ability to just jump in and launch, which is invaluable for a pirate group. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I just, I like that. I don't know how else to explain it. I like the little flavor that that adds. Again, it's like the earlier things I was talking about. It's, it's just a little bit of sprinkling on an otherwise excellent cake. Um... This episode also establishes something else I find interesting, which is funny because I just mentioned the hard science thing. It establishes that the visions thing of the Centauri, which has been mentioned before, by the way, uh, is truthful. She talks about how it's a possible future, and yet in this episode, we see that her visions are truthful and accurate. 100% accurate. Her original prediction about Kiro turned out to be true, and then she literally sees him die. And the vision she has at the end of Babylon 5 being destroyed, well, who knows then? I mean, she keeps saying it's a possible future, but that's not what the episode showed us. So I said I'd talk about this at the end here. Um, <clears throat> and that's the question. So, Jacquard, Delenn, Londo, and... I think that's it, actually. Are all approached by Morden. Mr. Morden. And all of them are asked a simple question. What do you want? What do you want? I wish I could say it as casually he does. He says it perfectly. I was just gushing with Lurker on the stream about how awesome the actor is that they picked for Morden. Um, but I, uh, Delenn's reaction is kind of obvious. And really, the only thing I have to say about Delenn's reaction is it's interesting how polite and cordial he is with her. Then again, he is with all the ambassadors, so I suppose that makes sense. Uh, and I do have one other thought, but I'll, I'll save that. So... I do want to discuss his question with Shakar and with Londo because it's very important. So I'm paraphrasing because I didn't feel like writing down an entire paragraph of text on my notes. Forgive me. But he asked Shakar what he wants. You know, I want to destroy them. I want to crush them. I want to sow their sands with salt, crowd their bones into powder, kill them, destroy them. And then he says, and then um, uh, Mr. Morton says, and then what? And Shakar says, well, I don't know. As long as my home is safe... I don't see that it matters. And thus we see the truth behind the Narn. Behind everything the Narn have been doing for, well, at the very least, decades. All of the military buildup, all of the expansionism, all of the political maneuvering, all of the weapons research, all the, all the, all the, everything they've been doing. And again, we've seen the Narn active throughout the show thus far in almost every episode. They've had their fingers in almost every pie. They've been running and doing and going, and we finally see laid bare why that is. Revenge. And nothing else. The Narn do not want some galaxy-spanning empire. The Narn do not want to conquer all the other races. The Narn do not want anything other than their revenge 
against the Centauri, and then, whatever, you know. All of it has been driven towards that one goal. Londo's answer shows the Centauri side of things. And again, this isn't really new, but this is just it being laid bare. All of the fluff, all the fat has been stripped off. Now there's nothing left but the bone, the core essence of both sides. The Narn, they want revenge, then we're good. We'll just be a part of galactic society. The Centauri, they want it back. They want their empire back. They want their glory back. They want to go back to the old days. They want to, if I could be so bold as to interpret, they want to matter. Because, let's be honest, the Centauri don't really matter on the galactic arena right now. Not really. The Mimbari and the Narn both outgun and outweigh them politically, economically, militarily, culturally. The humans outgun and outrank them in all those ways as well. And, you know, then there's the non-aligned worlds, but even the non-aligned worlds have some influence over the Centauri. They are this close, just drifting back into being that irrelevance. They practically are there already. They want to matter again. They want to be major players on the stage. They want to be the great Centauri Empire again. Days of glory and height and vision, and they want to be seen and respected. So, and I love this because if you think about it, that is a neutral perspective. And thus every individual Centauri can now look at it from their own perspective. Someone like Kiro, he probably wants to be back to grinding the Narn under his boot heel. Someone like Londo, well he has a quite a bit of a grudge against the Narn. But I don't think he wants to go to the evil side of that. I think he just wants to have the respect again, to matter again. His own words, I actually wrote this one down. I want to stop going through my life like a man late for an appointment, afraid to look before or ahead of him, or behind or ahead of him, excuse me. Londo just wants to be relevant again. He wants to have purpose again. He wants his people to be great, not feared as conquerors, not hated as oppressors, uh, and that's my phone. But great, again, you know? He wants the Centauri to be great. Now, the final thing I want to mention here is Londo takes the eye at the end, offered him by Mr. Morton. Now, the funny thing about that is any sane, intelligent person in that situation would look at that and say, how did you get this? Where is this coming from? What do you want for it? You know? Londo is an, and remember, at the beginning I mentioned how Londo is a skilled political manipulator. He is good at the arena of politics. He's good at it. But he has to know then that there are strings attached with something like this. So why take it? I think everything, all 13 episodes, arguably 14 episodes up to this point in time, have been emphasizing one point over and over and over. Londo has been ground by the boot's heel. Now, it's not literal. He's not physically down there being whipped for his impudence or whatever like that. Rather, he is down there, no career, no future, no joy, no love, no romance, no nothing. He has got nothing. And everything that he's ever wanted and loved has been taken from him. And now, and there's a wonderful scene right before it where he lays it out to, uh, to the woman, the seer, whose name I can't remember. Um, you know, I, my career is over. 
There's no saving it. And he says it with just quiet, simple resignation. There's no rage. There's no grief. It's just, yeah, it's, it's over. My career and my life is over. And I will do my best to see you to your ship, milady, and then I will probably be joining you. And that's it. It's just the quiet dignity, if I will. But in that moment, he has given up all hope of anything and everything. And then he suddenly handed the eye. And that eye, he, again, he is enough of a skilled politician to know what that means. That is the salvation of his career. He, not Kiro, will be the one to personally be able to gift the eye back to the Empire. Think about what that means to his career. Think about what that means to his affluence. So of course he takes it. Just like a man who is dying of thirst in the desert will take a cup of water even knowing it will cost them in the end because they're dying in the desert of thirst. You with me? I, I re-emphasize this point because I think it is very important to understand Londo's character. I've heard some people argue that he's just an opportunist and that he... Uh, or that he's an idiot. And I think both of those are invalid considerations, personally, just my take on it. Because I think he was truly, utterly desperate. And if not for the fact that he was at his worst when this happened, he might not have taken that cup of water. Um, one last note before we get to the spoiler sections. So, the whole episode goes by before Garibaldi gets back to Sinclair. And that makes sense. This has been a very busy episode in and out of character. So... Garibaldi goes back and says, the Mimbari set you up as commander of the station. Now, that's not literally what he says, but that is what he's saying. Dozens and dozens of people had, been, had lined up to be a part of this. Admirals, generals, lots of top brass, and they were all denied one after another after another by the Mimbari government until Sinclair came up on the list, and he was approved. No one else. And the Mimbari agreed to front Babylon 5 only if they had that power. They were willing to politically back a, a neutral station promoting peace throughout the entire galaxy and all the expense and all the political backing that that involves to get Sinclair in charge of the station. That's how important that was to them. No further thoughts on that. I just want that to sit in your mind. I really wanted to explain just how severe uh, of a thing that they did there was. So... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's spoiler time. <laughs> We've got a bajillion spoilers to talk about. I've only actually, I'm only actually going to cover a few spoilers here, so hang on. <clears throat> there we go. Okay. We're going to make sure we get our spoilers across. So I love how this episode is the handshake of Babylon 5. Let me explain what that means. Um, I actually don't know if that's an appropriate term or not. It's something I've used several times. Basically, when one plot leans naturally into another, I call it a handshake. Uh, and in this case, for most of the beginning of Babylon 5, the overall arc of Babylon 5 through episodes 1 through 12 has basically been establishment and raiders. And those have been the major points all the way up until now. And this is a raider episode. While a lot of screen time is devoted towards Londo and Kiro, it's still the raider plot. The primary plot of this episode is clearly the raiders. And the fact that they are finally banding, and, and the episode begins with them having a decisive victory and ends with them having a decisive defeat. 
Also, I can't help but notice the wonderful, beautiful symmetry of the fact that the Raiders, in an episode where the Raiders will... This is basically the last Raider episode. Like I said, it's a handshake. It's one, ep, it's one plot growing naturally into another. Or in this case, several others, but you get my point. So the Raiders have actually been growing in power, growing in influence, growing in strength, and in this episode, at the height of their strength of the capital ship, the ability to loan jump gates, and they're thinking about buying more capital ships, and they're going to be set for life, and then one shadow ship comes up and obliterates them, showing them just how small they are. That's the real threat. And even if you know nothing about this episode, obviously I couldn't talk about this in the non-spoiler section, but even if you know nothing about what's going on in this show, the sight of that nightmare thing obliterating the capital ship that has caused so much fear and distress and has basically been the base of operations for most of the troubles we've had for 12 episodes now, just like two-shotting it, done. That clearly indicates that things have now shifted up a gear. We are now moving up a tier in terms of our obstacles and opponents and our uh, antagonists in Babylon 5. And so, and the, of course, the Raider plot is naturally woven in to the Shadow plots and the Centaurian Narn War becoming a thing because this starts that. They, they might not have even had the availability of making this work if not for the fact that Kira was working with the, with the Raiders. And so they obliterate the ship, take the, take the eye, give it back, here you go. We'll be in touch. I love that. Um, love the symmetry of it. Uh, then, hang on, scrolling through. Uh, so, yeah, Mr. Morden, sorry. I, I, you'll notice I barely talked about Mr. Morden in, in the actual thing. I did that on purpose. I don't want to overemphasize Mr. Morden yet for people who haven't seen this series. Um, also, I couldn't really talk about him without talking about him. So I took note. There are seven scenes in this episode, Mr. Morton, it is. Now, that may sound like a lot, but it really isn't. He is barely in this episode. And yet, so much happens because of him. This is literally galaxy-moving events happening in seven scenes with a simple, unassuming-looking man who's polite and kind and a little bit terrifying. And that's the other thing I want to talk about. The actor who plays him is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He comes across as a really bizarre combination of a totally ordinary, hey, what's going on? Just another guy in the crowd. And in fact, there's a scene in the bar where uh, Londo gets the eye back and he's like, oh, thank you, and he rushes off. And the camera pans a little bit and, and Mr. Morden is right there. And he looks so ordinary. He looks like just another guy at the bar. Nothing significant about him at all. Mr. Morden just blending into the background. I love that. Uh, aside from the obvious shadow connection, it really helps emphasize the kind of characters. But the actor's brilliant because he's got that, and then he's also got that I'm the freaking devil thing going on. Because I use the word creepy, but I, creepy can mean a lot of things, and I don't want to misuse that word. So instead, he looks horrifying. He looks like he is up to something. He looks like there's just something unsettling about him in a wonderfully just, oh God, kind of a way. Um... And as we learn about his history, we will learn that that is more true than not. Uh, <laughs> service or die, indeed. Uh, but yeah, he does a great job. And as I mentioned in the actual, uh, the non-spoiler section, the way he asks the question, what do you want? I love the way he does it. I have literally tried for years to, to phrase that question with the significance that it, it is earned, it, it, that, it, that it deserves. But I can't. You know, I, tr I actually did an audio clip for the beginning of this episode, and I decided it was just too much. But he says it so perfectly. 
you know, I just have a simple question, Mr. Uh, Mr. Malari. That's what I wanted to you at. Wanted to ask you. What do you want? You know, he says it so normally, like it's just an ordinary question. What do you want? Love that. Um, also, <clears throat> Kiro was killed by shadows. Ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, so I. Oh yeah, I want to talk about one thing. I, I was thinking about deba debating this elsewhere, but this is really the the episode, the "What do you want?" episode, and I wanted to talk about it here. I don't have much to say about it, but the question is so indicative of shadow mindset, in my opinion. What do you want is all about what the shadows are. They are, the, they are in many ways, the opposite of the Vorlons. Um, change, ambition, aggression, uh, chaos, if you will, you know, dynamic, alteration, you know, constantly striving and pushing. That's sort of Darwinism. Uh, Darwinian? Darwinian sort of a perspective, you know, that's very shadows. So the question what do you want, makes sense from their perspective, because that is all that defines all of those things. What do you want? Okay, now I have it in my sights. Go make it happen. Go make it do. Change it. Do it. Make it happen. You know, that kind of a thing. It fits the shadow mindset perfectly, in my opinion. And, of course, the Vorlon question fits them, but we're not going to talk about that until comes the Inquisitor. Uh, Delenn's reaction to Morden... I mentioned it briefly earlier, but I also think it's interesting because I, I feel like it was a little bit too obvious. I hate myself for saying that. But if I was doing that, I would have had that much more subtle. I would have had her tell him to get out, you know, all of that stuff, covering up the eye thing, yep, definitely all of that. But there's one thing they do that was a little over the top. They literally cast him in shadows. They, they lower the lighting on Morden, so it looks like he is standing in shadow. That was a little bit too much, I think. Uh, not something I would have done. Because I feel it takes away from his, from his performance. Again, he's playing the, the everyman. Just an ordinary, typical, hey, I was sent here to send you. Also, one other nice little tidbit, by the way. You can kind of get the feel of how much influence the shadows have because of the fact that they have the ability to call upon, you know, I, I forget the names, but he names a, uh, uh, a Narn representative who got him access to see... Uh, Jakar, and he, and he got access to see Delan, and he got access to see Londo. Interesting point of note, he didn't get access to see any human ambassadors, and Sinclair is effectively the human representative here, but he never tries that. Now, you might think that's odd, but that makes perfect sense to me. One thing I have always believed, and I don't think this was ever officially confirmed, was that the Shadows already controlled the human government. That Clark was always a puppet of the Shadows, and that given the obvious similarities between uh, some of the things the Psychor and their coup are doing, and the Shadows are doing, that the Psychor was backed by or controlled by the Shadows. So there's no real need to go and, and, and interact with the human delegate because they already have the humans in their pocket, so to speak. That's always been my take on it. Um, Regardless, though, that also, uh, and another point of evidence in that, in my opinion, is the fact that he gets all this political uh, the political strings pulled necessary to see these ambassadors. It actually makes a lot of sense to me that human people, human individuals, are the ones who pulled those strings to get a hold of the right people to make sure that Morton could do this. Just as a favor. The Shadows like to trade in favors, after all. Um... There's a nice side touch I just wanted to mention. Something I don't think I ever noticed before. 
So during the aftermath, they mentioned how Kosh's suit was damaged a bit. That made me grin, because I was just like, oh god. Because I've always known that Kosh and, and Morden just stare at each other. Morden's been trying to avoid Kosh. We saw that earlier. And then when they actually see each other, Kosh is like, go away. These are not for you. Um, and then the next thing, and then it just cuts to black. And the next thing we find out is Morden is uh, freely giving the eye to Londo, and Kosh's suit got damaged, though he won't say how. I don't think I ever really put that together before, but that's brilliant and horrifying. Obviously, Morden himself couldn't defeat or hurt a Vorlon, but the ones hanging around with him probably could. <clears throat> um, final note, final note here. <sighs> so, Babylon 5's destruction. I don't know why, but this is probably one of the only things that bothers me as far as the overall arc stuff. They don't forget about this. I mean, I already mentioned how I think it's stupid about the possible future, even though the Babylon 5 will be destroyed as predicted, in the way that she predicts. Uh, the only difference is it'll be destroyed when it's destructed. It's self-destructed because they're done with it at the, in the final episode. That's not really... That feels like a cop-out to me. Like a red herring, actually, I think is really the, the term for that. It was a red herring. Oh my god, Babylon 5 will be destroyed! And they bring it up a few more episodes after this one, too. Like, oh my god, remember that prophecy about Babylon 5 being destroyed? Well, it's not really true, but it is. Again, the prophecies always turn out to be true. So, eh, I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> I, I got nothing, really. It reminds me of the prophecy about Londo. Well, no, actually, I disagree with that, because the prophecy about Londo's death, him and Jakar strangling each other, that's different. That felt much more satisfying. That was a bait-and-switch, not a red herring. Babylon 5 being destroyed just felt like a red herring. That's just my opinion. I don't know. I got nothing else. I'm done. Great episode. Really loved rewatching it. Uh, I rewatched several scenes twice, just because I like this episode much. Hope you guys enjoyed. See you next time, guys.